right, welcome to season five of Inside My Canoe Head. This is a Canadian podcast that's all about the integration of leading an incredible, awesome life, individual responsibility, individual emergency preparedness, and how do we navigate life's incredible, wild disruptions that we see among us. Sit back, grab a beverage. And enjoy the episodes. All right, welcome back. Thanks a lot for uh, everybody's wonderful comments on the last uh, episode about uh, Hurricane is coming. Got a great feedback about that. Uh, people realize that preparedness is kind of important, which is why today I've decided to do this episode on disaster response. We're going to take a quick look at Hurricane Ian and Hurricane Fiona as perfect examples as to why we know no one is coming to help you. So sit back, grab a beverage, let's get at her. I'm going to start off this discussion with just a very important point that uh, um, seems to be a bit confusing out there in the world. And you've seen a lot of LinkedIn posts lately about the need for these, uh, you know, new disaster response forces, you know, large scale human intervention to do all kinds of crazy, wonderful little things that need to be done in the face of a disaster. And I'm going to offer this to you that we have to remember and everybody should remember whatever you're studying or whatever you're interested in, be it geopolitics and the fight in Ukraine, be it uh, the state of food insecurity and in Western or the Sahel in Africa. It doesn't matter. Researchers do their work based on evidence. We do not do it based upon personal experience, and we do not base it upon professional opinions. The only thing that matters in research is evidence. So when you hear a lot of loud talking mouths, including mine, talking about preparedness issues or what you have to do, what you need to do and what, what I've said in, in previous discussions on this uh, podcast is you need to look for the evidence. So is it just so-and-so with a whole bunch of post-nominals or a really cute-looking position that sounds like they're important and smart are telling you something What's the evidence that they're basing their opinion upon? That's where you find the meat and potatoes of what's really going on. And so when we zero in on the idea that no one is coming to help you, it doesn't mean that nobody's coming to help you. It's that means there's a statistically insignificant number of first responders available to react in the first I would argue, five to seven days of a significant disruption. All you have to do is look at the fact that in Hurricane Ian, it's the biggest example that hit Florida and then went up and smoked the Carolinas, is the insignificant number of ratios of police officers, fire, and EMS to the population. And don't forget... Research shows us from Hurricane Katrina that near 50% of first responders are not going to show up for their shift until at such time as they are certain that their own families are safe, cared for, and then they will go care for the public in their role. Very few people 
uh, are altruistic to the point that they're going to leave the people they love in a stressful and dangerous situation without assistance so that they can go assist somebody else's family. You may think that that's ideal and, and that's the way the world is, but when you look at Hurricane Ian and the devastation in Florida and the flooding and day five, and there still are a number of communities who have yet to see a single rescuer of any time show up. And the same thing in Canada, if you want to zero out here on our experiences, when Hurricane Fiona went in, you have parts of the province that are still remain untouched by any rescuer response force uh, several days after it happened. So this idea that people have in their mind that the government is here to help, the government is going to come rescue us, and the government is going to come take care of us. It's an altruistic thought, and I understand. I've read all of the research as to why people think that way. The evidence points the other direction, and in researchers, in disaster, and any other field, we must base our conclusions on evidence, and evidence demonstrates that unless you are freakish lucky enough to live next to a fire hall, or there's an ambulance just happened to be having a burger next to your house when the shizzy hits the fizzy, you are on your own. And that's not a failure. It's that it is absolutely unrealistic and unsupportable to recommend that there are this massive amount of human beings ready to respond to an emergency, except for models similar to, and I'm not going to pronounce the German, it's called the THW. It is their locally trained version of the U.S. and Australian CERT program. It's a community emergency response training where the professionals, the people with the education, train large portions of a population to be able to do a lot of self-assessments, a lot of self and helpful rescue, how to look at buildings, whether they're good for occupation or not, how to purify food, how to water, how to clear roads, all these things, this training is provided by the state to the population so that the population can self-rescue. But there isn't a state that is coming to help you. You are on your own for far longer than, as it's been called, the 72-hour fallacy that one individual is presenting at DEMCON, uh, the Disaster Emergency Management Conference in Toronto this fall, which I... I highly recommend if you're interested that you attend at least virtually um, that it's a fallacy. 72 hours, nobody's coming to help in a significant incident. So because of that, we have to look at what you see on TV. So the evidence you see and the destruction you see, and then you have to look at the level of response. We're just in the response phase now. We're probably moving into the recovery phase. The response phase in disaster and emergency management is always the really sexy stuff. That's the lights, the sirens, the CNN hits. You know, the world zeroed in on your pain and suffering for an exceptionally short period of time. And response generally ends when uh, all of those who can be rescued have been rescued and all of those who injuries identified have been identified and basically now we're in the cleanup when you switch over to a cleanup you switch into the recovery portion which is probably the least understood and definitely the least researched portion of disaster and emergency 
management. So you don't need me necessarily to tell you that it would look really bad if you're in the middle of when the shizzy hits the fizzy and something like that happens to you and the government response is anemic at best. But that's largely all that they can do. I mean, if you look in Canada and the Canadian Armed Forces uh, response and, you know, a couple hundred folks, you know, most people expect five to 10,000 soldiers to be deployed to deal with that kind of situation if there really was work for a large-scale human external intervention. Um, But that just simply isn't available, and that's a different talk on another day as to the state of the Canadian Armed Forces. But there's a lot of discussion in Canada surrounding that, that we don't have a CERT program or a version of a THW program in uh, Canada to provide that level of training so that we can train a robust local response. So... What does the individual do? First, we're going to deal with the individual does, and then we're going to talk about what the community can do. So as an individual facing, uh, you know, a shizzy hits to fizzy or a significant disruption that's coming your way, or as I keep lauding my great friend, Mr. Foss out in BC has incredible information and preparedness for earthquakes, whatever it is you're sitting on and your threat profile, and you have a significant hazard where you live, and you've accepted that hazard because you're still living there, you've chosen to live there. So what is it that you can do? So I've talked at length in this podcast, and I'll repeat it here today. The best preparedness plan that you have with your family is based against the loss of critical infrastructure. So you don't really care why the power's out, but the power's out. And I did, I put out a tweet, you know, as Hurricane Fiona was getting ready to smoke the maritime saying, folks, you got to be prepared to be out of power for at least seven days, if not more, which has proved to be true. You have to be able to take care of yourself because there's very little state capacity that is going to come. You're probably going to, you're going to have to be your own 911 service for the first 72 or more hours, which proved to be true. 911 was down for almost a week. Um, you're going to have to be fried the first aid. So if somebody has a broken leg or a heart attack, you're going to have to deal with that 100% on your own without any external intervention, irrespective of how much taxes you pay. These are just reality. So base your capacity to respond based, that's your preparedness. That's what you're building is your capacity to respond and react to the realization of a hazard, an imminent earthquake, or the striking of a hurricane. You have to be able to deal with all this stuff on your own. So always looking past, far past what the reality of the information out there is. Evidence shows clearly and unequivocally that at least seven days after a significant event, you are not likely to see any intervention from a state actor in a significant event. Let me say that again a minimum of seven days. That's the evidence based on everything we have all the way back to uh, Hurricane Andrew in 1993, or 95, I forget, up through the hurricanes on the east coast of uh, United States and Canada, looking at earthquake damage that has happened anywhere from Nepal to India to Afghanistan to Pakistan to um, the Ring of Fire in the Pacific in New Zealand, and up the west coast of the United States of America, seven days is what evidence tells us. That's what you have to be able to prepare to provide all services to you and those for whom you're responsible. 
I plan 14 for significant incidents, right? And the reason I do that is because the reality has told me that it's likely longer than seven. That's my opinion, right? But if you're looking for actual evidence, seven days is where the evidence comes down to that isn't appropriate. So you need to be able to power everything in your house for seven days. You need to be able to provide significant and intervention first aid and trauma stabilization for seven days. You must be able to provide for fire extinguishing. Don't forget that if you have a gas leak because of an earthquake, nobody's coming to put a fire out but you. You have to have the capacity to deal with some port of fire. Now, you're not going to have a fire truck, right? But dealing with that, you're going to have a handful of fire extinguishers, right? There's good ones that are on sale at uh, Costco. I mean, having four or five of those tucked away is never going to be a bad problem, and it's not going to cost you that much money as well. And probably just as important as the minimum the evidence says is seven days, the evidence also speaks to us about evacuation, right? If you attempt to evacuate when a mandatory evacuation is down, what's two things are going to occur. Number one, you're going to be in the middle of everybody else who waited to the last minute. So the traffic is going to be improbably difficult. And number two, if you waited for the mandatory evacuation to go, all the likely hotels in the region of probably 300 kilometers, 100, you know, 200 miles from your house are already booked, right? People have already made that call. Waiting to evacuate until there's a mandatory evacuation is a recipe for failure. The time to go if you're going to evacuate and you know, I'm a libertarian at heart, stay if you want to, go if you want to. I always say evacuate. Uh, that's my own personal view, but if you don't want to, fair enough. You just get to eat it all on your own. Um, if you decide to evacuate, evacuate when a voluntary evacuation is to put in case. Have a destination predetermined, and it should never, ever be a rented hotel. It always needs to be a friend and family location that is a significant drive away, right? Don't try to drive 100 kilometers from your home. You're going to want to go several hours from your home because the place you're selecting to stay needs to be a place that you can stay for a significant period of time if the unfortunate event happens that your structure you live in is damaged and unoccupiable, right? If you just go rent a hotel, the Crazy 8 Motel or a Motel 6, wherever you go, and then your house is knocked out, well, you could be 30 days and, you know, it may be longer than that before you can get an insurance adjuster to get down. And I don't know, do you have 30 days worth of hotel per diem and food on your credit card ready to go? Do you have that much in your emergency plan or your emergency fund? So the idea behind evacuation is always it's up to you to predetermine your destination. If you ever have to evacuate, you should have that done now. Have that negotiated with a friend or family member that they know they're on the hook should something happen to you and that you have a primary and an alternate transportation route depending on the world situation at the time. This is something you need to do. It costs nothing to figure out and plan. And trust me, it takes a massive amount of stress off of everybody when you can just say to your family, hey, listen, you know, that hurricane looks like it might hit us. We're going to take a couple day vacation. We're going to go to Uncle Bob's. Um, we're going to hang out there just to make sure nothing happens 
to the house. In other words, you're going to go during the voluntary evacuation. There's not a lot of people on the road because people generally aren't smart enough to do it this way. You get to the destination. You're not forking out hundreds of dollars a night in a hotel room in a competitive environment, uh, which means hotel rates boost through the roof, supply and demand. Uh, and your, your family is safe. And then if necessary, you can just return to the house if nothing bad happened. Uh, and if something significant does happen, you're well secured. And when you evacuate during the voluntary evacuation period, you have time to take. It's not a massive panic. You can go about your house, take about the, you know, the important documents and all the other BS they tell you. Uh, that can all be replaced, by the way. What I'm saying is, is you get to go through the house in a calm and orderly fashion and determine what you'd like to take with you, determine the clothes and things like that. You have time to finish the laundry. Like, you have time to do normal things to prepare to leave. When the mandatory evacuation hits, you don't have time to do that stuff. And now you're competing against the horde of last-minute humanity. Now, from the collective part, we know what you got to do personally. We get it, right? From the collective part, this is where my research steps in. I research social capital, which is human bonds in communities for individual and community emergency preparedness. This nest, what I'm going to talk about now, is my research area of expertise. When you look at the local community, and I'll bring in some military thought here, we have the lowest sizable unit that we'll talk about in the military and we call it the squad right so in canada that's eight infantiers or a tank crew or something along that lines the point being is you break it down to your neighborhood think about your neighborhood and all the things that you have to do to prepare your neighborhood to deal with whatever may come and the idea of social capital social capital is the access is the network of friends and family that you have, those close personal people that you trust, and it builds a mesh network. If you were to put Sally, Bob, Joe, Muhammad, Ismail, and put everybody together and then draw lines between who knows who within your close little neighborhood, you start to see your web of your social network. And as you get to know people in your neighborhood and you familiarize yourself with them and they familiarize yourself, themselves with you, you create a social bond. The people who are going to rescue you out of your collapsed building are not the fire department. It's going to be your neighbors, right? That's how humanity works. When the shizzy hits the fizzy and power and everything's cut off for a couple of weeks, if not more, because of a major disaster like Hurricane Fiona, all of those stuck in your community, you're going to rally together to respond. So the idea of building social capital in advance ensures that you have a greater capacity to respond. You get access to their resources. They get access to your resources and you get access to their external community. It's about trust and you build these networks. And I've always said the first most important thing that you can do to start a journey of preparedness is to meet your neighbor. That's far more important than buying a 72-hour kit on, you know, off some Yahoo charlatan online. Research shows in over 100 years of research that's been done into earthquakes and disasters Research shows that communities with strong social bonds respond better and recover far faster. So those communities that are rich in social bonds have strong relations and take care of each other, know each other, and value each other within the neighborhood, they recover better. 
they come out of disasters faster. They get better access to municipal resources because they're organized and they disproportionately have higher recovery rates, not just the frequency, but also the time. What basically means is that if you have a strong interconnected small neighborhood, call it a street. If, imagine if you lived on a cul-de-sac, right? These roundabout streets that have no exits. If everybody on that were together and you had some form of reasonable disaster preparedness plan amongst your families that are on there, everybody looked out for each other. And then a Hurricane Fiona hits, that street will bounce back far faster and far better than all the streets around it. That's what evidence shows. It's not opinion, right? It's not conjecture. It's not professional experience. It's what the research tells us. That's where your bonds grow and that's where you can have the greatest impact on your family's recovery should you need to stay and not evacuate or something quickly happens. Like you can't evacuate uh, for an earthquake, right? You can evacuate from the tsunami. I get it. Absolutely. If there's anything left of the roads to evacuate on. But the point is, is that when an earthquake hits, you're dealing with what's there. And if you have these strong social bonds and these strong networks on your street, you're going to recover faster and you're going to cover better and you're going to get a disproportionate amount of resources from the municipality. That's just research. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you think that's true or not. That's what the research says. Take the time to build your social community. Take the time to build your personal preparedness for the evidence says seven days. Now, my personal opinion is 14. You do you. But the evidence clearly tells us for a minimum of seven days, no one is coming to help you in a significant disaster. And the only people that are going to come help you are your neighbors. So why not take the effort to build that social capital? This is the basis for how CERT works. And I spoke earlier about the THW in Germany. It's the same thing. So what the state's idea behind a CERT program is, you get a group of neighbors together like a cul-de-sac residence. Say you have 30 homes on there, 30 families. They get together. They get collectively trained on things like damage assessments for building, extended first aid. They get um, training on how to clear roads, how to safely take down trees, how to safely move obstacles, how to create shelter, how to create warming centers, and all the things that need to be done to save human lives in the days that fall, in the moments and the days that follow a disaster. Formal training is given now. In some projects and areas of New Zealand, they've actually, the state has actually come out and said, okay, if you're willing to organize as a street, if you're willing to take the training as a cert, we're going to give you the resources. So in, in one project, they gave residents resources. So the chainsaws, the picks, the first aid kits, the cots, the portable shelters, they were all provided by the state to that cul-de-sac so that that state is ready. Because remember... Um, New Zealand has earthquakes regularly and they're pretty significant and they sit on the ring of fire and they're pretty shortly due for another big one, right? 
So because of that, they know that the state can't come help these people. So what they do is they provide the training and they provide the equipment so that these people are best suited to rescue themselves, which accepts reality. You may not like it that the government's not coming to help you, but they're not. So these are where the CERT and the THW programs do exceptionally well is because what you have is the local community taking the necessary education and gaining the necessary experience and equipment to be able to respond to its own emergency. And if the state has the capacity to help, that's great. But state response for the immediate injuries, etc., is is a nice to have, but not a necessity. Now, you and a CERT team, you're not going to regenerate power and set power back up. The state has to do that, but you're going to have the capacity to maintain minimal acceptable power loads at everybody's house so that people's freezers worth of food are not lost. People, a refrigerator can kept going for those that need refrigerated medication. Um, depending on the time of year that an earthquake happens, uh, you may actually need to heat people. So you need the ability to have heat sources running, right? So that's what the CERT and the THW models work. So right now, as you're sitting on your couch and you've listened to me for 25 minutes, I'm asking you to simply reflect on your own state of personal preparedness for a significant event. Do you have an evacuation plan that's real, a destination predetermined with agreements in place and a primary and an alternate route to get there? Do you have a minimum of evidence tells us seven days of supplies in your house? That means you have the ability to feed, water, house, protect and provide first aid for your family, however you define that in the modern century, right now? And have you reached out to the community? And a great idea is if you live in high-density housing, this social capital and CERT programs work really, really well for apartment buildings. Imagine if you had a 60-unit apartment building that has a significant CERT program and everybody was aware, right? You were actually aware that the elderly lady in 6B actually was on oxygen. And she doesn't go out much, so most people might not notice her or even know she's in 6B. And that if there is a significant incident where loss of utilities, you know the vulnerable in your community and you can build a plan to help them. Somebody can go knock on 6B and ask if she's okay, if there's something they can do to help her. It's, this could be a heat emergency. This could be a cold emergency. That's the idea of building social capital within your community, enhancing that with CERT training to build this rock solid object called your neighborhood that is fully and robustly capable to respond to a disasters. All that can happen with the state's help, but what fails every time is if you're waiting for the state to come do the rescuing and to feed, house, and water you. If that's your outcome, then you are not going to have a likely positive outcome. That's what the research tells us. So thank you very much for joining us this week on Inside My Canoe Head. If you like what we do here, continue to drop by our website, insidemycanoehead.ca. Uh, buy me a coffee. It'll cost you $3 Canadian. Uh, I cover your credit card fees. It would be awesome. I am fueled by wonderful, simple black coffee. Um, 
give us your opinion, ideas for future episodes. I get them regularly. Uh, and if you don't want to send me an email at jeff at uh, preparednesslabs.ca, hop over on Instagram. I'm on Inside My Canoe Head at Instagram. I put a whole bunch of fun stuff up there. Um, drop me a DM on Instagram, right? Uh, just tell me what you need, want to hear. Tell me what you're interested in. Uh, tell me what matters to you and we'll put an op podcast episode together. And if you're interested in coming on the podcast episode, heck, we can do that too. That's not a problem whatsoever. So thanks again. Uh, please heed what I've put on out here. This is what evidence does, right? There's a lot of people out there that are yakking on the internet with their professional opinion and their 20 years of experience. That's great. But in research, that really doesn't matter. We don't pay that much attention to it. To be frank, we look at evidence and evidence says what I've put on here is what you should do. So take care, stay safe.